0: Our Father, we confess that we need you by your grace to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are quick to obey. We pray, Father, that our time spent here in your word may be profitable to the end, that you would be equipping your people and encouraging the saints. And May you be glorified today as you show yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would help us to understand it as we look into it. We ask in Christ's name, amen. The ability of unbelievers to come up with excuses for not believing the gospel is, well, it's marvelous to me. I look back at my own life and uh, all of the excuses that I gave prior to the Lord by His Spirit arresting my heart. And I marvel at the things that I once said and the things that I once believed and the things that I once used as excuses for not coming to faith in Christ. And looking back over my childhood, and this is just going to be a little bit autobiographic for just a second, Looking back over my childhood, I remember three sort of distinct phases of excuses that I went through. One of the earliest memories, and some of the earliest memories I have as a child, are memories of being concerned about dying and what would happen to me after I died. Um, Most kids remember throwing their toys or getting a certain Christmas present or birthday gift. I remember standing by the graveside of my great-grandmother wondering to myself, what's going to happen to me when I die? Do I get a box just like that one, and I get put into the ground? Is it going to be cold? Am I going to be hot? Am I going to feel anything? Am I going to know anything? All those things were going through my mind. I had religious grandparents, great-grandparents. My great-grandmother, I believe, was a believer. Uh, on one side of my family, I had a great-grandmother and great-grandparents on the other side that were Seventh-day Adventists. So one of the excuses that I used early in life was uh, for avoiding the gospel was that I could be good enough to get into heaven because I was told by my great-grandmother, who was a Seventh-day Adventist, that as long as I observed the Sabbath and... and uh, kept the Ten Commandments and was a good child, that I would make it into heaven. At the end of time, God would look at my good deeds and my bad deeds, and if I had been a good boy, I could get into heaven. If I had been a bad boy, I would go to hell. And I think that it was somewhat self-serving of my family to try and convince me that my eternal destiny hinged on me being a good boy. And looking back on it now, I realize why they put that out as sort of a carrot in front of me to lure me into goodness. And so I believed that for a period of time, and I thought, okay, well, I'll get in by my own goodness. At the same time, from my family members, I heard a lot about Jesus, mention of Jesus, and uh, Jesus was a good man, and Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross, but at least in my mind, as about an eight- or nine-year-old boy, I was thinking to myself, Jesus seems awfully unnecessary to me, because if I can get in by being a good person, what's the point of having him come and do anything for me? That was what was going through my mind. Uh, As time went on, my illusion of my own goodness began to fade, (laughs) and I realized... If it's by goodness that I get in, I'm in some serious trouble. Because as an 8, 9, 10-year-old boy, I realized I was not good, not good at all. So I started to sort of grab onto the idea of evolution, because I was starting to be taught that in the school system, and so I thought, okay, well, maybe evolution is the answer. Maybe my conscience is an illusion. Maybe the whole idea of God is just the myth of a bygone era, an unscientific age, and something that men sort of fabricated to keep people good, kind of like my relatives had fabricated this notion of heaven and hell to keep me good. Maybe that's why... God exists, or that's why people believe that God exists, and so the Bible then would be maybe a nice book, but a book of fairy tales. And So I kind of glommed on to evolution for a couple of years to use that as an excuse for unbelief, and that lasted until about my early teens when I had to be honest with myself and realize I'm having a hard time accepting the notion of evolution. So my third sort of jump or an excuse was to, um, and this one only lasted for a little while, maybe a few weeks, where I started to think maybe we were planted here by aliens, from some other... Hey, you laugh, but there are people who believe that. It's called transpermia. There are people who believe that nonsense, and, and I, for a while, started to, to throw that out. I had a friend of mine who lived a couple doors down who was uh, arguing with me constantly about this issue. He was a he was a believer, and uh, he was instrumental in me coming to faith in Christ. Well, that lasted for a little while until I finally realized that, yeah, you know, i got to give that up and just be honest with myself. I think that God exists, and I'm probably going to be held accountable when I die. Now, that wasn't the point at which I believed, but that was the beginning of the end of my unbelief. Because once you arrive at the conclusion that God does exist, He's going to hold you accountable when you die. I didn't feel any better about my uh, the prospect of dying and where I might go, but at least I felt better about being somewhat intellectually honest with myself. Now, as a believer, I look back over all of the nonsense that I believed in the blasphemous and heretical and horrible things that I said as an unbeliever, and I say to myself, how many possible excuses can somebody give... For remaining in unbelief. And I gave almost everyone that could be given. I went through the gamut of excuses. All of them were irrational. All of them were nonsensical. All of them were illogical. All of them were self-contradictory. But I could give them to you. Because that was my life for a long period of time. That is the exact same mentality and the exact same mindset that we see in John chapter 6. These Jews in John 6 are giving uh, excuse or um, giving voice to the heart of unbelief that we know characterized them. We know it characterized them from earlier parts in the chapter. And if there is any anybody who is without excuse, anybody whose excuses are irrational, and anybody who had enough light to make a right and rational decision, it was the people in John chapter 6. These are the people who the previous day had seen Jesus perform miracles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. These are people who on the previous day had seen Him feed almost 20,000 people from five little pancakes and two pickled fish. These are the people who had heard Him teach. They had seen His marvelous signs. They had all of the light necessary to make a right and wise and God-honoring decision, and yet they chose to remain in unbelief. That was their decision. And the excuse that they give voice to in John chapter 6 verses 41 to 43 is irrational, illogical, and absolutely nonsensical. And yet by doing so, they demonstrate that they are truly unbelieving because they do not belong to Jesus. I don't want you to imagine that as we begin verse 41 now, we've ended verse 40, I don't want you to imagine that there's a big, gray, a big gap or a big change, a big break in the text. As if you might be tempted to say to yourself, okay, well we're done with, we're done with verses 37 to 40. We're done with all the talk about the sovereignty of God and God the Father giving a people to His Son and the Son coming infallibly to save those people and the Son infallibly doing the will of the Father and our security in Him. All of that stuff makes me uncomfortable. I'm glad we are not talking about the sovereignty of God yet. That's behind us. We sort of knock the dust off of our feet and move on with the text. <laughs> not quite. Because in verse 44, Jesus returns to the very same theme that He began in verse 37, and that is explaining the unbelief of the crowd. In verses 37 through 40, Jesus is explaining to them why they do not come to Him. And this is the reality. They do not come to Him because they do not belong to Him. If they had belonged to Him, they would have come to Him. And they would have come to Him, and they would have beheld Him, and they would have believed upon Him, and they would have received eternal life, and they would be raised up at the last day. But they did none of those things because they were not His people. In Jesus' words in John 10, if they had been His sheep, they would have heard His voice, they would have come to Him, He would have saved them, He would have given them eternal life, and they would never have perished. But the reason for their unbelief is that they were not His people. So He returns to that in verse 44 and states it again in very stark terms. But We're saving that for next week. Today we want to look at the excuses for unbelief that are offered in verses 41 through 43. As the narrative unfolds, Jesus has taught them on the... In the synagogue at Capernaum, he's taught them there. The crowd is kind of having this dialogue with Jesus as he teaches and then they respond. This is kind of unlike other discourses, which is just Jesus' long dissertation, his long sermon. This has an interaction with the crowd, and you can see it in the text as you look at it. Jesus teaches a little bit, and then they respond. And the purpose of this is to show that no matter what Jesus says to them, they re- they respond with unbelief. Their reaction is unbelief, and now excuses for their unbelief. And that's what we get in verses 41 to 43. He's just told them, you do not believe because you do not belong to me. And then they go in and they express their unbelief, give an excuse for their unbelief, and demonstrate that Jesus' diagnosis of them was accurate. They were not His. And they would not come. They did not believe. They were not willing to turn from their sin and repent and believe upon Him. And for that reason, they will not receive eternal life. So let's pick it up in verse 41. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Now John's use of the word Jews here is a little bit, it's a little bit odd or curious because nowhere else, uh, at least nowhere previous to this, is this group of people referred to as the Jews. Usually in John's Gospel, when he refers to the Jews, what he has in mind is the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Nicodemuses, those who were the religious elite, the priests, that's what John means by the Jews. He uses it sort of a, as a derogatory term, in a sense, of those people whose hostility to Jesus was unrelentant and well, unrelenting and well-known. Yet here he refers to the Jews who voiced this opposition to Jesus. And up to this point, it seems as if Jesus has just been talking about your run-of-the-mill Israelites. The crowd. But we might understand the Jews to be a reference to the leaders in the synagogue at Capernaum because you see from verse 59 that these things Jesus said while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So it's in all likelihood that this is the leaders of the synagogue now who are voicing this response to Jesus. He is in the synagogue. They have heard him teach from verse 26 all the way through now to the end of verse 40. And the leaders of the synagogue, the Jews, the leading Jews, having heard what Jesus has said, heard his teaching, now respond with verse 41 by saying, Is this not Joseph, or Jesus, the son of Joseph? How is it that he says, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven? They were grumbling about him. What is the response of the unbelieving heart to strong doctrinal teaching? What is it? What was the response of this crowd to what Jesus has said in verses 37 to 40? Was it strong doctrinal teaching? Incredibly strong doctrinal teaching. Very offensive things that he said in verses 37 to 40. Offensive to the natural man, sometimes offensive even to Christians who don't like what he said in verses 35 or 37 to 40. So it was offensive teaching, and what is their response? They grumble. They complain. That's the natural response of an unregenerate heart is to complain against strong teaching. The unregenerate heart doesn't like doctrinal teaching. The unregenerate heart doesn't like to be offended. And so it responds by grumbling and complaining about what it is taught. And Jesus had taught them strongly, and so they respond by grumbling. It's an interesting word that's used for grumbling. It's gugudzo. Ggudzo. It's one of those words that it is an onomatopoeic word, an onomatopoeia. Do you know what an onomatopoeia is? An onomatopoeia or an onomatopoeic word is a word that sounds just like it means. You can tell that I like using the word onomatopoeic and onomatopoeia because it's kind of a neat word even itself. An onomatopoeia. One of those words is a word that sounds exactly like what it means, like our word quack. Even our word grumble in the English kind of sounds like what it means. Grumble, 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 grumble. Kind of that low, you know, the rumbling amongst a crowd that's just upset with what it has heard or what it has seen. They were good, good zoeing. They were grumbling. You can almost picture that amongst a crowd, can't you? Who does he mean? He says he's the bread of life. Come down from heaven? Does this guy think he's nuts? He doesn't think he's nuts. He thinks he's serious. But he is nuts. It's crazy to say that. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know where he came from. How does he not say he comes down from heaven? Do you hear people kind of whispering that and grumbling to one another underneath their breath, talking to one another like that? It's an imperfect verb, meaning that they kept on grumbling. It wasn't just a one-time response. This was what the crowd was doing over somewhat of a period of time, maybe a few minutes that this was going on, before Jesus finally calls them on it and says, Stop your... Grumbling. What were they grumbling about? They were grumbling about, verse 41, that he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Now here's what's interesting about their statement when they quote Jesus. He never said that. Do you notice that? Jesus never actually said that. Go back. You can go back to verse 26 if you want and read through it. The closest thing you'll find is verse 32 where Jesus says, um, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So he's mentioned bread, bread that comes down from heaven. Then he says in verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then in verse 35, I am the bread of life. So they quote him as saying something that he never said. In verse 41, they say they were grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. But that statement never came from Jesus' lips. But the meaning did come from Jesus' lips. They're paraphrasing everything he said. Why is that significant? Because it tells us that though though they did not quote him accurately, they understood exactly what he was saying. They understood the implications of it. They have put together all of his various teaching on bread from the previous day, from this day, from that afternoon, everything he said in the synagogue, and they have in one sentence summarized everything that he said. He is claiming to be the bread of God which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They understood exactly what he was saying. Now he had never actually used those words, but they got it. They got what he was teaching, they got what he meant, and they got all of the implications of it. That's significant because all the way up until now, from what we understand, the Jews did not understand what he was saying. In the previous section, verses 26 through 34... When Jesus began to talk about the loaves and the fish and the bread and the manna that comes down from heaven, he says, "Our they say our fathers ate the man in the wilderness." As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus, in verses 32 and 33, talks about the bread which came down out of heaven. And at verse 34, they still don't understand it. Lord, give us this bread. They thought he was still speaking of physical bread. Now, in verse 41, we find out there came a point when he was done teaching. They said, "We get it." Now we understand exactly what you're saying. Up to this point, we thought you were talking about physical bread. You were going to provide something to feed us and the nation, some sign, some miracle. And when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, they understood it. They got it. And we get it. We get what you're saying now. And that's what caused them to begin to grumble. They start to grumble saying, we understand what he's saying. He's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about spiritual bread. He's claiming to be that bread, that fulfillment of the manna which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the people of God. They got it. They got it. They understood it. All of a sudden, there was no no longer any confusion on behalf of the people. There's something interesting here about what it is that they're doing in this complaining. Do you remember all the way through the context we've been talking about the people of God being out in the wilderness and manna and God feeding the people by the manna in the wilderness and God's miraculous provision and Jesus being the fulfillment of that and now the people are grumbling about God's fulfillment. Does that sound like anything? Does that ring a bell? Does it ring a bell? It ought to ring a bell. Do you remember when God provided for His people in the wilderness manna from heaven? How did the people respond? Yeah, Numbers chapter 11. I'm going to read it to you real quickly. Numbers chapter, not the whole chapter because it's a long one. Numbers chapter 11, the first few verses, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Terabah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Here the Lord for His people had provided for their physical need in the wilderness and the people grumbled. Why? Because God's provision for their need did not meet their expectations. It wasn't up to their expectations. Now in John chapter 6 we have more people out in the wilderness whose physical need has been met by the bread of life who came down to provide for their need which is forgiveness and how do the people respond? With grumbling. Why? Because He, that provision did not meet their expectations. What were they expecting? A king. They tried to make Him king. What did they want from Jesus? Everything except what he was willing to offer them. And the one thing they didn't want was what he was offering them, which was forgiveness. And they grumbled. And in their grumbling, they demonstrate that they are just like their relatives, their ancestors in the wilderness who grumbled at the provision of God. Just as an aside, let me remind you that grumbling and complaining is always a sin. There's never an exception to that. I could give you all kinds of personal anecdotes of complaining, because my children do it all the time. And so I could give you all kinds of illustrations of that from them. And every time they do it, and every time I do it, it's a sin. It is a sin. Do you know why grumbling and complaining is a sin? Because what grumbling says is, I do not like what God has provided, what God has done, what God has allowed, what God has decreed, what God's providence has worked, what his wisdom has determined. I don't like any of that. What I want is something different. That is why grumbling and complaining is so odious. You you want to know what God thinks of grumbling? Read the book of Numbers. Read the book of Numbers. You'll walk away from Numbers saying, Hey, I like the weather. I'm never going to complain about the weather again. I'll never complain about anything. That's what you'll do. That's how God feels about grumbling. It's so odious to Him because what it does is it says, I don't like your sovereignty, your providence, or your wisdom. And if I were on your throne, I would be able to dispose of Jim Osmond's problems better than you have. I would decree something better for me than what you have done. And that calls into question God's wisdom and God's providence. That's why grumbling is always a sin. And that's the type of grumbling and complaining that the people are doing. They are grumbling. They are murmuring. They are complaining because they do not like the Messiah that God has provided. They don't like his teaching. They don't like what he has offered. They don't like what he has decreed. And so they're resisting it. And they're grumbling and they are complaining. And God hates grumbling and he hates complaining And grumbling and complaining are the mark of an unbelieving heart. you realize that? The generation of children of Israel in the wilderness is known for their rebellion, their stiff-neckedness, their hard-heartedness. And it is no coincidence that they are also characterized throughout the Old Testament as a grumbling and complaining generation because those two things always go together. And the degree of the hardness of my heart and my unbelief can be measured by the amount of my grumbling and my complaining about any given thing. It's always an expression of, Unbelief. Not not perishing unbelief, but a heart that does not believe and submit to the will of God. That's grumbling and complaining. So what was their beef? The people. The Jews. Well, they said, how, how does he now say, and the bread that came down out of heaven, they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? This is what it boiled down to, friends. There's really one thing. We know his parents. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know who they are. We know where he came from. How is it that he now says that he comes down from heaven? He grew up just a stone's throw from here in Nazareth, a few hours walk away, and now he gets to be an adult, and he says, now I have come down out of heaven. But this can't be right because we know his mom, we know his dad, and we know where he came from. He grew up in Nazareth, not heaven. How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Nazareth isn't heaven. Nazareth is like Clark Fork. It's the furthest thing from heaven you can possibly imagine. Nazareth is no heaven. He grew up in Nazareth, and now he lives in Capernaum. And how does he now start making these audacious claims about having grown up in heaven, been in heaven, come down from heaven? That's their beef. How does he now say this when we know his mom and his dad? It's true that a prophet is never welcome in his own hometown, isn't it? Yeah, that's what Jesus found out. He lives in Capernaum now. Remember, Capernaum is his adopted hometown. Ever since he got into ministry, he had made Capernaum basically his adopted hometown. Capernaum saw more miracles than any other city in the nation of Israel. Capernaum had more of his teaching than any other city in the nation of Israel. It was his base of operations. If he wasn't traveling, he was staying in Capernaum. The people there knew him. He was considered a resident of the town of Capernaum. Now his mom and dad probably lived over in Nazareth. Some people have suggested that they may have moved to Capernaum when he started his ministry. And so the leaders of the synagogue that Jesus attended every Sabbath would have known Jesus. They would have known his mom and dad. Because if his mom and dad didn't live in Capernaum, they would have visited him from time to time. So they would have been familiar with his mom and dad. And their mom and dad would have been familiar with the Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum, they knew him. They knew his parents. They knew where he came from. They had a history with him. And so what they're saying is, you may be able to pull this ruse off to people who don't know you, but we know your mom and dad. You can't convince us that you came down from heaven. Because we know your parents. There's something odd about their objection You notice this? I I, I read their objection. I think to myself, it seems out of context. It just doesn't fit with the flow of the passage. We know where you came from. And they're grumbling about him saying that he came down from heaven. You know, I read verses 35 through 40. And I say to myself, of all the things that you could pick apart, you chose his claim to come down from heaven. And I almost want to shout into the text, did you not hear what he said? He claimed to be the divine son, to be given a people by the Father before time began. He claimed the sovereignty and the power to secure and to save these people. He claimed to be the one, the basis and the foundation of men's belief. And he claimed to be the one that if they do not turn and believe upon him and trust him for eternal life, they would perish. He claimed that if they did not receive him and trust him, that they would die everlastingly. He claimed to be the one who is able to give eternal life. He claimed to be the one who would raise all men up on the last day and you're picking this knit, I came down from heaven? There's a lot of offensive stuff from verses 35 to 40. His claim to come down from heaven is at the bottom of the things that would offend me if I were in that condition. It seems like an awful silly thing to object to. He came down out of heaven. They're objecting to his claim to come from heaven when he has just told them things which are monstrously on a scale of offensive and huge, and yet they are picking knits at this one thing that he claimed pre-existence. But maybe really that is the heart of the issue. Maybe it's not nitpicking, because if it's not true that He came down from heaven, then what do we do with everything else that He has said? Does it stand or fall? Truly, everything else that He has said in the passage hinges upon that one thing. I've come down from heaven. Because if He did not come down from heaven, then He's no divine messenger, He has no divine message, and He is on no divine mission. If He did not come from heaven, then He is not sovereign in salvation. He will not raise men up, and He is a liar. So maybe rather than picking nits, they are really going at the heart of the issue. Because they know that if it is true that He has come down from heaven, sent by the Father, then He is God in human flesh, He is the Messiah, and He is able to do everything that He has claimed to do. But if that one thing is not true, then everything else crumbles. Everything else He has said is meaningless. Everything else He has said is really the ramblings of a madman. And I think they knew it. And I think they strike right at the heart of his claims this one thing. He didn't come from heaven. He came from Nazareth. Because we know him. We know where he grew up. We know his parents are. And the humble origins of the Lord Jesus was to them a stumbling block, just like it is to countless people today. Is it not? His humble origins. They looked at him and assessed him entirely from a human vantage point. Entirely from the flesh. Because natural man, unregenerate man, has no ability to comprehend spiritual things or to understand spiritual things. Or to grasp them, to behold them in the language of verse 40. Unregenerate man is unable to do all of that. And so they have assessed Jesus entirely from the vantage point of the human perspective. We know his mom, we know his dad, we knew where he grew up, and there's nothing more to him than what meets the eye. And yet there was much more to him than what meets the eye. And the world today does the exact same thing, by the way. The world today looks at you and, you, and they say to you things like this. You mean to tell me that you believe that salvation hinges upon a man who lived 2,000 years ago under Roman oppression, died on a Roman cross, was rejected by his own people, and that by faith in him you have your sins forgiven. That sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? When you put it like that, it sounds quite unbelievable. From a human vantage point, it is entirely unbelievable. The whole message of the cross is unbelievable. And that's really the point. God could have done it in a much more believable way. J.C. Ryle, in his book on the Gospel of John, says this, Had our Lord come as a conquering king with wealth and honors to bestow on his followers and mighty armies in his train, they would have been willing enough to receive him. But a poor and lowly and suffering Messiah was an offense to them. Their pride refused to believe that such a one was sent from God. End quote. That's it. It was a pride issue. Look, if he came from heaven, we would expect a little bit more regality, a little bit more fame, a little bit more bright lights. This guy is a carpenter son turned itinerant preacher. We know his mom and dad. We're supposed to believe that he's the Savior of the world. Their pride could not accept it. It is from the human vantage point the most unbelievable message you are ever asked to believe. But friends, that's the point. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. It is to the Jews a stumbling block and it is to the Greeks folly. It's folly and stupidity in the eyes of the world. That's why they say you can keep your faith in the closet. Just don't bring it out of the closet and expect it to be taught in the schools. Don't expect it to have a fair hearing anywhere in our culture because this is lunacy. You want to believe that? That's fine. Just keep it away from me and keep it out of everything else. Because we're not going to give it a serious consideration because it's goofiness. You're goofy zealots. All of you believers are goofy zealots. You know that? You're weird in the eyes of the world, and rightly so. You believe one of the most unbelievable messages possible. But the fact that we believe it is evidence of what? That God is the one who saves. Because the message of the cross is foolishness, and because the message of the cross is a stumbling block If anybody believes it, it is evidence that a work of God has been done in the heart and that God is the one who saves because he uses the foolish and he uses the stupid and he uses the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. Demonstrating that the foolishness of the message preached is wise enough to save all who are called. It is an unbelievable message. So they're grumbling. They're grumbling about his claim to come down from heaven because it is an unbelievable claim from a human vantage point, and it truly was, but their unbelief, is nothing more than objections, or their statement, their objection, is nothing more than unbelief in disguise. It's, it's disobedience and disbelief in disguise. That's all their unbelieving statement is. They were looking for an excuse for their unbelief, a rationalization for their unbelief. Well, he claims this, but we know this, therefore we're justified in not believing. And their unbelief is nothing more, or their statement is nothing more than unbelief carefully disguised as an objection. Unbelievers do this all the time, by the way. Yeah, before I can accept Christianity or the message of the cross, I have questions that I need to have answered, and I've got objections, and I hear the Bible's full of contradictions, and it's been translated hundreds of times by hundreds of people over hundreds of years, and you just never know. It's just men. Of, it was written by mere man. All of those objections, all of those rationalizations, are nothing more than expressions of unbelief, and that's all their statement is. Their statement is nothing more than unbelief and an excuse for their unbelief. We know where you came from, therefore we're justified in not believing in you. And all they're doing is demonstrating that they do not belong to Jesus. If they had been honest seekers, seeking honest answers to honest questions in truth, what would Jesus have done? Would he have veiled it from them? To deceive them? To keep them from belief? If they had been honest seekers asking honest questions, seeking honest answers, Jesus would have given them honest answers to their honest questions. But do you notice that he doesn't? Verse 43. What does he say? Stop grumbling among yourselves. That's it. He doesn't answer their questions. He could have gone on and said, no, no, you you don't understand. Joseph is not my real father. I was born of a virgin, conceived in the Holy Spirit, came into this world before Joseph and Mary knew each other. That's my true origin. He could have waxed eloquent about his time in heaven. He could have talked about leaving the worship of angels. He could have talked about his knowledge of the Father. He could have talked about his knowledge of the Holy Spirit, his knowledge of God's salvation. He could have proved to them his credentials that he did pre-exist. He could have done all of that. But would it have mattered, anything that he said, would it have mattered? If he had waxed eloquent about the virgin birth and said to them, I was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin, born from a virgin, would the crowd then have said, oh, see, that makes sense. Now we understand. Yeah, so we'll, we'll believe now. Now we'll repent and turn. Would they have done that? No. They would have come up with some other dodge, some other excuse. That is exactly what unbelievers do. Sometimes unbelievers do ask genuine questions. It's okay to answer them. But Jesus was able to recognize when the question, their objection, was nothing more than hardened unbelief. And he'd skipped right over it. And he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when I read that, I ask myself, what is the connection of verse 44 to this their objection? It doesn't, at first glance, seem to be a connection. What does verse 44 have to do with Joseph being his parent and them knowing Mary and his claim to come down from heaven? Do you see the connection? Let me ask you the question in a different way. Their statement that Jesus, they knew Jesus' parents and therefore he could not have come down from heaven, that is nothing more than an expression... A vocalization of what? Their unbelief. So now I ask you the question, what does verse 44 have to do with their unbelief? Now do you see a connection? You cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. What is the connection of verse 44 to their unbelief? Verse 44 explains their unbelief. And here is what Jesus is saying, you have had light, you have had truth, you have heard it, you have seen it, you know who I am, your problem is not that you lack evidence, the problem is that you love what? Darkness, because unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence, never in John's gospel is unbelief due to a lack of evidence, it is always a love for darkness, always a love for darkness, they had evidence, they had truth, they had light and they loved darkness instead. And so Jesus is saying, it is because you—not not because you have an intellectual problem, not because you have a curiosity about my origin. That's not the reason of your unbelief. Your unbelief rests in your moral problem. You love darkness. And because you love darkness, you are rendered by that love for darkness, unable to come to me in and of yourself. And so Jesus is saying, you don't need proof. It's not evidence that you need. It's not another sign. It's not more teaching. What you need is a sovereign, supernatural work of the Spirit of God in your heart, and without that, you cannot come to me. You are unable. Your sin and your slavery to sin, self, and Satan renders you, in and of yourself, unable to come to Christ. And apart from the sovereign work of God, no man can. No man will. The issue was not their lack of evidence. The issue was their love for darkness. And all Jesus is doing in verse 44, and we've got to save it for next week, all He's doing in verse 44 is showing them that it wasn't evidence that they needed. It was a supernatural work of God in the heart to make them willing and make them able to come to Him and trust Him and behold Him and believe on Him and receive eternal life, because no man of himself is able. Now you can tell from verse 44 that the uh, the uh offensive part of this section is not quite past, is it? Now it gets more offensive. You thought you were offended with verses 37 to 40? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verses 44 and following is offensive to us. It is offensive to the unregenerate. It's offensive to the Jews. More offensive teaching is to come. Jesus didn't throttle back his message in the face of unbelief. He ratcheted it up. He said, this is why you don't believe. It's because you love darkness. And that love of darkness makes you unable to come to me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of God that brings salvation, has appeared to all men, and has brought us salvation in your Son, Thank you that those who were unable and unwilling have been made in the day of your power, both willing and able to come to your Son. And Lord, we look back upon our pre-Christ days when we did not know you, we did not have light, we did not understand truth. And we marvel at the excuses and the blasphemies which we uttered and believed. And yet you have seen fit by your grace to save us from those things and to bring to us the knowledge of the truth. Thank you for such a wonderful salvation. And thank you for effecting that in our heart and causing us to be born again by your word. We thank you for these things in the name of your precious son. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again...